Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's open up our Bibles to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. If you're using a paper Bible, just find the dead center of your Bible, and that's about where the Song of Solomon is going to be. We're going to read in Song of Solomon chapter 5 as we open up the Word of the Lord and get ready to spend the next few minutes in His Word. As you're turning to Song of Solomon chapter 5, and as you're getting settled in for this part of our worship, I will extend that welcome that was issued to you a little bit earlier by saying it's great to see everybody this morning. So glad that you are here. Thankful that you were able to survive windstorm 2020 yesterday. That was some crazy wind we experienced yesterday, but glad that we're able to be here today and to encourage each other and uh, our worship together and give glory and honor to God uh, and do that in spirit and in truth. As was advertised on the front page of the bulletin, and as you can see on the screen behind me, I am pleased this morning to introduce our preaching theme for 2020 on marriage matters. And that kind of has a a dual meaning to it. First of all, it means that once a month, when you see that little logo at the bottom of the screen, when I get up to preach, you're going to know that today, Josh is going to be preaching on some matter pertaining to marriage. And this year we will. Talk about all kinds of different matters about marriage. We'll talk about headship. We'll talk about the role of submission in marriage. We'll talk about forgiveness in marriage. We'll talk about adultery. We'll talk about being single. We'll talk about all kinds of things that revolve around the idea of marriage and the marriage relationship. But secondly, what I'm really wanting to emphasize through this series this year is that marriage matters. You get my meaning when I say it that way? We live in a society that is very much down on marriage, very negative toward marriage. Less and less people are getting married, and less and less people are staying married. And a big reason for that downward trend is because our culture has, I believe, just a very dismissive attitude toward marriage. Eh, marriage, so what? Who cares? Well, God cares. And God wants His people to care. And so this morning, and in fact throughout this year, it really doesn't matter where you are in your life, whether you're single or whether you're married, whether you are engaged or whether you're a newlywed, whether you are divorced, whether you are happily married, whether you are unhappily married, whether you've been married for 50 years, these lessons are for all of us so that all of us can develop a biblical attitude, a biblical mindset toward marriage. I realize that I can't change everybody and how everybody out there thinks about marriage, but I can do something about me. You can do something about you, and little by little, we can be the salt of the earth and we can be the light of the world. And that's going to begin for us this morning in that book of the Bible that probably celebrates the joys of married love more than any other place in the Bible. And that's the Song of Solomon. Would you read with me here in chapter 5 as the bride is describing her beloved. Look at this description. Song of Solomon 5 beginning in verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is 
altogether desirable. Let's just stop right there. What would you say is the greatest threat to marriage in our world today? What is the one thing that threatens to destroy everything that we hold near and dear about the marriage relationship? I think for many of us, our knee-jerk response is to say, oh, that's easy. Gay marriage. Gay marriage is the biggest threat to marriage today. The assault that the LGBT community has placed on the biblical definition of marriage, all that, that's what poses the greatest threat in our society. And to be fair, that's a big issue. It has certainly dominated much of our attention for the past decade or so with all the legislation, with all the Supreme Court rulings and decisions that have been handed down, all the glorification of homosexuality and all the other perversions that go along with that. That's definitely a very pressing concern. But I wonder if maybe the gay marriage debate is just a red herring. If maybe that's just a distraction that's keeping us from seeing what the real issue is that's putting marriage in jeopardy. Now, I certainly understand that gay marriage has implications for us as Christians because we're trying to stand up for what the Bible says. We're trying to uphold biblical values and biblical principles, God's definition of marriage between one man and one woman for life. But I've got to tell you, I don't think anybody came here this morning thinking, boy, I hope Josh is going to preach on gay marriage because I've been really thinking real seriously about leaving my spouse and getting married to somebody of the same sex. I don't think that was anybody's thought this morning. I don't think that's an issue for anybody here today. I don't think that that's affecting our marriages. I don't think that that's posing a problem for our singles. But what I believe is affecting our marriages, and what I believe is a problem for our singles, is what I'm going to term this morning the search for super spouse. Super spouse. Can I explain to you what I mean by that? Super Spouse is not the latest Marvel comic that's going to be turned into a blockbuster motion picture this summer. Rather, Super Spouse is a mythical character. And it is a mythical character of our own creation. It is when we seek and desire to have a spouse who is incredible and wonderful and practically perfect in every way. It is the one that single people are looking for who will, who will complete me. It's that individual who's just got, they've just got it all. They've got the total package. They've got that perfect combination of good looks and a great personality and tremendous spirituality and just everything about them and everything about their life is just on point. And if you're married, who am I talking about? Well, it's that, it's that incredimate that we have kind of built up and we've devised in our minds that we then measure our spouse by that image. We measure our spouse by this image of this super spouse that we have designed. That ideal mate that often causes us to say things to our spouse like, Oh, why can't you be more of this? Or come on, why can't you do more of that? Lots and lots of people, lots and lots of Christians, whether we want to admit it or not, we are searching for, we are wanting, we are looking for super spouse. In fact, the passage we just read in Song of Solomon chapter 5 seems to be describing super spouse, doesn't it? Just look at this guy as he's described here. He's astonishingly good looking. 
He's amazingly sensitive. He's remarkably kind and gentle. He probably even enjoys mowing the yard. I mean, come on, look at this guy. He's practically perfect, at least in the eyes of this beloved woman. He is perfect. And a lot of us read passages like that. Or we hear our friends, or we see our friends' posts on Facebook. And what we then build up in our minds and what we say in our minds is, why can't I have that? That's what I want. I envy that. I want a super spouse. Why can't my spouse be like that? Please don't tell me that that desire and that pursuit is not a problem. Why is it, for example, that more singles are waiting longer and longer and longer to get married? The average age for first marriages in this country continues to rise. Back in 1960, the average age for a first marriage was 22 years old for men and 20 years old for women. In 2018, that number rose to 30 years old for men and 28 years old for women. Why is that? Well, study after study continues to show it's because men and women are waiting longer and longer to commit to someone until they are absolutely 100% positive that they have found their soulmate. I've got to make sure that I have found super spouse. And then what about those folks who do get married? Well, in fact, the percentage of adults who do get married, actually that number has fallen dramatically through the years. In 1960, 72% of adults, ages 18 and above in the United States, 72% of adults were married in this country. You know what that number is now? That number's hovering around 50%. Only around half of adults in America are getting married. Why is that? I think a lot of that has to do with folks feel like, I just can't find super spouse. I can't find that exact, perfect, right person that I've built up in my mind and that I've got to have. And what about how do you measure that in a marriage? It's somewhat hard to measure dissatisfaction in a current marriage, but you know what? It's not hard to measure divorce. All of us have known someone who have left their spouse, a woman who has left her husband for another man, a man who has left his wife for another woman. And when they do that, there's oftentimes a pretty clear indication, a pretty clear message being sent, and that is that, you know what? You're not that super. The person that I originally got married to, you're not all that super. But this new person that I found, oh, they, they are super. They are exactly what I've been looking for. Do you see now? Do you see why I am not convinced that the problems that we face in our marriages are the result of homosexuals marching the street or homosexuals demanding that they get a piece of paper from the courthouse? I don't think that that's our fight. And I don't think that that's our issue and what's causing us problems. But this, the quest for super spouse... The expectation that my spouse needs to live up to my exalted and lofty standards, or if he doesn't or she doesn't, I'm never going to be happy, that, that does affect us. Which is why this morning I want to begin this series by just talking about the myth and the absolute fallacy of hoping and wishing and thinking that you can find super spouse. I believe that there are just some big problems whenever we expect our mate to be this person who's got the big letter S on their chest and they've got the red cape and they can just absolutely do everything that we have ever wanted in this relationship. I think that sets us up for failure in our marriage. And this morning, I'm going to talk about three bedrock truths that it causes us to just absolutely forget. These are the kinds of truths that ought to be obvious to us. They ought to be apparent to us. 
But it seems that whenever we have these extraordinary expectations for our spouse or for our would-be spouse, we just end up losing sight of these truths. They just completely go in one ear and right out the other. And that ends up causing discontentment, dissatisfaction, and unhappiness. Maybe that leads to loneliness where we never even get married. Maybe even worse, what it leads to is it leads to sin. Where I'm not happy with what I've got, so I'm going to go looking elsewhere. Maybe that leads to fornication. Leads to adultery. Leads to divorce. Why? All because we were seeking that ever-elusive character known as super spouse. Somebody maybe says right about now, well, Josh... (laughs) What's wrong with having high expectations of my mate? I mean, come on. We don't want to set the bar low, do we? How does get married to anybody? What's wrong with, with looking for the very best? What's wrong with looking for, for perfection, if you will? Or at least something close to perfection? Well, number one, I'm going to tell you, that's a problem because, because it's never going to happen. And that's because of this first truth, and that is that sin's presence in our world absolutely guarantees that your spouse will always be less than perfect. They will never be super spouse. Can we go back to the very beginning and find that first marriage? Look in Genesis chapter 2, please. In Genesis chapter 2, after we read in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 about the account of creation, we're told that God sees everything and He sees that it's all good, but He finds one thing that's not good. He finds that it is not good for man to be alone. And so God sets about the task of of correcting that, reversing that. Beginning in verse 21, Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Would you look now at verse 25? Because here's the verse that always caught my attention growing up. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Wow. It says they were naked. Can you even say that in church? I always used to flinch a little bit when the preacher would read that or somebody would make reference to that, say that out. It says they were naked. Why does it say that they're naked? Well, it says that first and foremost because it was entirely appropriate. There wasn't anybody else there in the garden. It was just a man and his wife. They were there in the garden in the joys of wedded bliss. It was absolutely appropriate in that place. But it also says that, we're also told that, so that we can understand the innocence and the purity of that relationship at that point in time. Everything in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25, it is good, it is right, and dare I even say it, it is, it's really as close to perfect as it has ever been. Which is why it then stands in such stark contrast to what happens next. You know what happens next, don't you? Chapter 3. Sin enters into the world. If you were here last Sunday night, we talked about this. Satan tempts Adam and Eve. And they end up giving in to that temptation, verse 6. But have you ever noticed what's the very first thing that Adam and Eve do after committing that sin? Look in verse 7. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I am sure that I do not understand everything 
about what marriage was like in Genesis chapter 2, before sin entered the world. I do not know what that was like. But I understand all too well what sin did to marriage in Genesis chapter 3. Sin ruined the perfect intimacy that existed back in chapter 2, verse 25. They put on clothes. Why did they put on clothes? Because sin changed things. Sin changed everything. Where once there was this perfect unity and perfect harmony, now there's blame. Now there's shame. Now there's you shoulda and why didn't you? That relationship was ruined. It was marred by sin. And you know what? It's been that way ever since, hasn't it? Sin's presence in our world, single folks, it guarantees that all the people that you will ever date, yes, all the people that you will ever date, they will not be perfect. They will never be perfect. Sin guarantees that the person that you are engaged to, that knight in shining armor, that damsel in distress that you're going to rescue, she is a sinner, he is a sinner. Sin guarantees that the person that you marry, the person that you are married to, can you believe this? Your spouse is a sinner. Somebody may be sitting there thinking, Josh, don't be saying that about my spouse. I have to say that about your spouse. I'll say that about me. I'll say that about my spouse. I remember years ago after Tiffany and I, we had hadn't been married very long. We were still newlyweds. And we were, we were in the middle of one of those newlywed spats. And I went to a, a good brother in Christ, an older brother in Christ, been married for a whole lot longer than I had. And I'm just kind of venting to him a little bit. And I'm telling him about how... She did this, and I said this, and we were fussing back and forth, and I was just kind of flummoxed and dumbfounded. It just seemed so unexpected to me that we would be fighting, that we would be arguing, that we would be fussing this early on in the marriage. And I'll never forget this brother. He kind of, as he listened to all of this, he kind of sarcastically just stood back and he said, you know what, I can't believe it either. It's almost like two sinners got married. And he was right. Two sinners did get married. And ever since, that's been the case for all of mankind. And since marriage involves the joining together of two sinners, then that means there is going to be the things that sin introduces into that relationship. There's going to be pride. There's going to be selfishness. There's going to be anger. There's going to be fits of rage, harsh words, spite. There's going to be me-ism in that relationship. Look in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, here is a verse then I'm going to guess probably isn't hanging on anybody's home decor. You probably don't have this on a plaque or stitched on a quilt in your house. But I'm kind of of the mind that maybe we do need this stitched on a quilt in our house. Maybe we do need this hanging up in our house to be a constant reminder of this first truth. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That verse is literally applicable in every situation. It is applicable in every relationship, in every environment, in every moment that you find yourself in. When you go out on a date, there's going to be sinners involved. When you're standing at the marriage altar, there's going to be two sinners standing there. When you've been married for 50 plus years, there's still sinners involved in that relationship. And I want to remind you, that Romans 3, verse 23, it is what happened back in Genesis chapter 3. And in fact, if you keep reading your Bible forward from Genesis chapter 3 on, what you will not find is that suddenly in Genesis chapter 4, Mr. Perfect showed up and he set everything right. Or that in chapter 4, Mrs. Perfect showed up and she just fixed everything. No. No, what you'll read about as you keep reading in your Bible, and in fact this week when we're doing our Bible reading, 
You'll read about Abraham, who lied. And as he lied, he nearly got his wife stolen by a pagan king. Can you imagine the friction that probably would have caused in their household after that happened? You keep reading in your Bible, you'll read about Jacob and how he had multiple wives. This dysfunctional family, he sires children by four different women. What in the world was that household like? What was that marriage like? You keep reading in your Bible, you'll read about David who committed adultery. How that damaged and destroyed not just his own family, but it damaged and destroyed a whole other family, the person that he cheated with. You keep reading on even in the New Testament. You'll read about people like Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and a wife, whose dishonesty and their lack of integrity, it ended up leading to both of them losing their lives. What started in Genesis chapter 3 has plagued every marriage and every relationship throughout the history of time, including yours. Which means that your spouse, your spouse is a sinner. And single people, all the, all the bachelors and the bachelorettes that you ever date that are out there for you to choose from, all of them are sinners too. Unless we forget that we're just not pointing the finger at everybody else all the time. It's not just the person that you're dating that's a sinner. And it's not just the person that you're married to that's a sinner. No, relationships are a two-way street. That means that you are a sinner too. All of us are sinners. There is none who is righteous. No, not one, Romans 3 says. Well, there was one. But you can't date him. You're not going to get married to Jesus. And so if the only ones who are available to us are flawed and broken people, then why are we seeking perfection in those relationships? Why are we looking for something that has not existed since Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Maybe that's because we forget this second truth in our quest for super spouse. And that is that the purpose of marriage is not to make me happy. That's not what marriage is all about. Do you remember, I don't know, going on 20 years ago now when, when cell phones really started to break through in the mainstream and just everybody started getting a cell phone. Do you remember 20 years ago, kind of the main... Uh, cell phone providers at that time would have been like Motorola and Nokia. And as the phones got smaller and smaller, everybody was carrying a Motorola or a Nokia. And all the phones were exactly the same. They were all either black or they were gray. That is, until one day, somebody looked at that and thought, man, that looks really plain, that looks really dull. But then they noticed, hey, that faceplate, it just it pops off. Hey, what if we pop that off and we made it in color? Wouldn't that be cool? I'd like to have a blue one. I'd like to have a Kentucky blue phone. Hey. Blue face plate. And then Louisville fans said, let's put a red face plate on that. And before you know it, we're not only putting colors, but we're putting designs and we're putting bling on those things. And we're getting them personalized with our initials on it. We're getting our favorite sports teams put on that. We're doing all kinds of stuff. And it's not just the face plates. We get cases that are personalized and exactly the way that we want them. The lock screen, we make that how we want it. Our wallpaper, our ringtone, all of that. It's customized. We make our phones to fit us individually what we like and what we want. And that's pretty cool. But in many ways, that's what we've done in marriage. We've tried to make marriage very individualized. I want to make it what I want and what I like and what's good for me here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to customize my spouse to make them what I want them to be. Is it any wonder why we have troubles in marriage? Here I have all these ideals in my mind. 
about what would be perfect in this relationship. And now your job, your job is to make all of that happen. Your job is to see to it exactly that I get what I wanted here. And then, of course, when that doesn't happen, after all, point number one, we're dealing with a sinner, we're dealing with an imperfect person, we get frustrated, we get upset. That creates tension, that creates problems. For some, it even leads to just giving up altogether. Just going to bail on this relationship. Get out of this marriage altogether. And what do they say? They say, oh, I, I just needed to be happy. I wasn't happy anymore. So I needed to go so that I could be happy. It was time for me to start taking care of myself. I wasn't being fulfilled in that relationship. She wasn't making me happy. He wasn't meeting my needs. Wait, 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 wait. Would you hit the rewind button there for a second? When did we ever decide that marriage was about me? Where did that come from? Did that come from the Bible? See if you can find that in Genesis. Would you go back there again to Genesis chapter 2? Look at that verse that I actually I skipped over a moment ago. See if you can find this me business right there in the garden. When God first created marriage, as perfect as it was ever going to be, what do we read about marriage? In Genesis chapter 2, look in verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become... One flesh. One flesh. One flesh is not about two separate people coming together, one of whom's purpose in life now is to just serve the other one, and that's what their life is all about. Men, that is called a maid. And somebody may be thinking, well, that's not really what I was looking for. That's not what I was trying to get out of marriage. Somebody who's just going to be my maid all the time. Okay, that's called a concubine. A harem. Okay? And that's not what God is advocating for here. That's not described in Genesis 2 verse 24. Instead, what's described in Genesis 2 verse 24 is two people who come together to serve each other. This is not about doing for me. This is not about you making it your sole preoccupation in life to see to it that I am happy. Marriage is not about me at all. Marriage is about us. It's about we. It's about what we can become together in this one flesh relationship. You want to see that in the New Testament? That's Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul frames up for us what marriage ought to look like, and he gets even more specific than the Genesis account does, as he talks about the, the roles that the husband and the wife are called to play in marriage. And he talks in this passage really about how we are called to serve our mate. Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning of verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Drop down to verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hey, we heard that before, didn't we? Verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her Husband, under the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that husbands and wives both have critically and vitally important roles 
that they each must play. And what he describes here is how two people are coming together to work for the other's good. That's what's being described here. And as a result, they end up building something that is bigger and something that is better than their individual selves. In fact, in marriage, as God would have it, is you have two sinners who end up coming together to help each other to be better than they were before. That's God's ideal. Two sinners coming together to help each other be better than they were before. It's about two imperfect people helping each other with the grace of God to become more of what the Lord wants them to be. In short, we serve each other so that we can serve Jesus. Now you think about that. That is a huge shift from this me-centered, I want to find me a super spouse approach to marriage. This instead is the approach that says, I want to help us go to heaven. This is the approach that just absolutely changes what you look for, young people, in marriage. It changes how you act in marriage. It changes who you are. Because it's not about me getting a super spouse for my benefit. It's about me being the right kind of spouse for our benefit. Which means, thirdly, I'm going to have to work at that. I've got some work that I'm going to need to do on myself in order to make this relationship work. And I'm afraid that that gets completely forgotten whenever we start thinking about super spouse. When I'm so fixated on what they need to do and what they need to become and how they need to do to suit me, I I need to stop thinking about the other. I need to be working on me. Now, from time to time, and and I've had even some elderly brothers and sisters at places that are kind of critical of this idea of saying that it takes work to make a marriage work. Because after all, marriage is supposed to be, it's supposed to be joyous. It's supposed to be this wonderful and joyous experience. I mean, read the Song of Solomon. Marriage is not meant to be this thing where I, you know, I put on my hard hat, I get my lunch pail, and I'm gonna go to work, and I'm gonna work on my marriage. That's, that's not the way we need to think about marriage, and, and I get that. I understand about that. Marriage should not be treated with, you know, any less enthusiasm than we do about going to our jobs. But I also understand this. I also understand that relationships of any kind, they take effort. They take work. When two sinners get together especially, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And they're going to have to work at that so that they can serve each other and so that they can walk with God. And if they don't work at it, then they're going to end up doing what really comes naturally to them. And what is it that comes naturally to us? What comes naturally to us is I want you to do for me. That's what comes naturally to for us. I want a super spouse to get in here and start tending to all of my needs. That's what is natural for you and I. In fact, what we read there in Ephesians chapter 5, stop and think about it, there's really nothing natural about that at all. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 33, wives, respect your husbands. That takes effort. That's not a natural thing. That takes determination to find out what your husband is doing right and to encourage him in that and to yield to his leadership. Husbands, verse 25, to love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for. You know what that's speaking of? That's speaking of sacrifice. And that is totally unnatural. I don't want to sacrifice. I want to keep what I've got. And I want to get more. And I want people to do for me. Sacrificing, that takes work. That takes conscious effort. 
And I want to be clear. When I say and I advocate here that I'm going to have to work at this, you're going to have to work at this, I don't necessarily mean that the solution to that is, is well, the way that you work at it is husbands going by going by flowers and candy for your wife every now and then, and that's that's how you work at it. Or wives fixing his favorite meal, and that's that's how you really work at it. All of that's good, and that can be helpful. But sometimes what that kind of stuff amounts to is, hey, I've been nice to you. Look at the good stuff that I did for you. Now I expect for you to be super spouse for me. I need you to do all this stuff for me. That's not the kind of work that I'm talking about. I'm talking about working on me. Working on the inner man. I'm talking about working on my heart. I'm talking about working on my character. I'm talking about working on refining that role that God has called me to play in this relationship. I'm talking about the hard work of bringing self into conformity with the Word of God. And I'll be candid with you. All of us, we see that point there. Yep, marriage takes work to work and we all nod our heads in agreement. Yep, that's exactly right. Amen, brother. It takes work to work make a marriage work. But you know what? It won't be 60 minutes after the closing prayer this morning that somebody's going to be pushing their mate in some way to be super spouse. Do for me. Meet my expectations. Where's my happiness? Why can't you just? In fact, I know that it won't even be 60 minutes because I know myself and I know how I am. I know that I am a sinner. And I know how I can very easily decide when the preacher stands up and says, hey, it takes marriage, it takes work to make a marriage work. I know that it's easy for me to decide that what that means is that my spouse, yeah, she needs to do some work. She needs to get busy with that. She needs to start doing some stuff. But you will notice on the screen behind me this morning, I have been very intentional to include lots of personal pronouns. Is that a painful reminder as I turn and I look at that? I have to work on myself. I need to work on me. That, that's who I'm responsible for. And so after hearing this sermon, what's maybe our singles thinking right now? Singles right now are thinking, well, I'm never getting married. I'm never going to get married. Gosh, nobody thinks like this today. Finding someone who thinks in those terms, who looks at this from a biblical point of view, man, that, that's just impossible. You're not going to find anybody like that today. Singles, can I just gently say to you, you don't need to find somebody who has Ephesians 5, 22-33 all highlighted in their Bible. You don't need to find somebody who has these three points you know, written in the margins of their Bible. But what you simply need to find is somebody who has a respect for the Word of God and wants to try to live their life according to the Bible. And when you find somebody like that who wants to know what the Bible says and wants to then to just yield and submit themselves to the Word of God, then this... This will just work its way out. But I'm going to tell you this as well. If you don't find somebody who has a respect for God's Word and who is interested in doing things in God's way, then you're just going to be fighting a never-ending battle of who's doing the serving and who's being served all the time. That's what you're going to get and it's going to be miserable. What are maybe the married folks thinking after a sermon like this? Maybe what you're thinking about is you're thinking about, very ashamedly, you're thinking about that last squabble that you had with your spouse. Or you're thinking about all the things right now, you're cataloging your mind, all those things that make you unhappy about your mate. Maybe you're even thinking to yourself, you know, I just don't think I can stand this anymore. I think I'm looking for a way out. But I'm going to say to you this morning that if we will give up our quest and our search 
for this elusive super spouse, then maybe instead of thinking, oh man, I married the wrong person, maybe what can happen is, is we can begin going to work on becoming the right person. Our world is going to just keep looking for super spouse. Back eHarmony, Match.com, they make it easier than ever. And they want to tell folks that, hey, you can find that perfect spouse. Well, those companies may promise that, but they can't actually cash in on it. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner that we realize that marriage is indeed made up of two imperfect people, that we're going to have to work together, and we're going to have to serve each other. It's not about my interest, it's about our interest together. And the sooner we can begin to reap the benefits of that one flesh relationship that God created all the way back in the very beginning. Now it is absolutely true that sin has tainted our world, the world that we inhabit right now. And everything that we experience in this life is always less than perfect. But the good news is, is our God has prepared a place that we can go and we can live forever. And it is a place where sin cannot invade. And it is a place where everything about it is perfect. And we can live in perfect harmony with the other inhabitants of that place. Most importantly of all, we can know the perfect fellowship that God intended for Him to have with human beings in the very beginning. The way that we get from here to there is by being brought into a relationship with with His Son, Jesus Christ. God sent His Son to this earth to be, yes, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect atonement for our sins, the offering that you and I needed in order to find forgiveness and in order to find salvation. This morning, we offer you the Lord's invitation. We extend it to you. Can we help someone this morning to be united with Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism? To be brought into fellowship, into unity with God the Father and with God the Son, with God the Spirit, with the saints who are faithful to Him. Can we help you to become a Christian this very hour? Brother or sister, can we help you to serve the Lord in a better way? It may be that you've not been serving the Lord in a right way. You're not in a right relationship with Him. There's tension, there's friction, there's disarray in that relationship. You need to repent of that. Sin's going to always cause problems, but by God's grace and by His mercy, He gives us the opportunity to come back to Him. Can we help you to serve Him in a better way? Whatever your need may be, so that you can be in a right relationship with your Creator, would you take advantage of this moment right now by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing?